this asset can generate income in so many ways. It's not just the content. You now have the rights to use that content in so many ways. Welcome to Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. I'm Dr. Jen Barna, and I'm here today with Julie Broad. I'm very excited to bring you this guest who has a world of experience in real estate investment, becoming an author, and now has launched a company, which I think you will find to be very relevant and interesting, called Book Launchers, and it's helping people to become authors. Julie, welcome to Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here, and I really am looking forward to hearing your story and how you have come to be where you are now. Thanks for having me, Jen. I'm excited to be here, too. So tell me a little bit about how you got into real estate. You're originally from Canada. Is that Mm -hmm. right? That's right. How did you get into real estate investing originally? I had just graduated from university actually, and a coworker said, this is a good company, but you know, I feel like you should do more. And so she told me to go buy a book. And this was back when you had to get in the car and go to the store <laughs> to buy the book. So I went and I bought Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it was just a mind shift for me that you know I needed to get my money working for me. And I had plans to go back to university to do my MBA. And so I thought, I can't start a business. So what can I do? I don't have time. And I just looked and I thought, well, I've got some money saved for university. That could be a down payment on a house. And that's what I did. (laughs) I took the money that I had for university and I put the down payment on a house. And I convinced my boyfriend at the time to do another one with me. And so we bought two. And then I financed my university with student loans because it's much easier to get student loans than it is to get down payment money. And that's how I started. And it was fun. And I started buying a property every year, sometimes five. And by 2009, I was buying a house every month. I'm very excited to talk with you about this because for anyone who's interested in entrepreneurship, real estate investing, and of course, we're definitely going to get to becoming an author. This is definitely a conversation to listen to. So when you started doing that, if you don't mind me asking a couple of specifics, Mm -hmm. what type of reserve did you find that you needed to be able to manage all the things that could potentially need to be fixed on multiple properties as you were adding one a year and you were really, you know, in the early stages of your financial life. So how did you come up with that reserve? This was 20 years ago. So I didn't have that. I'm kind of the typical entrepreneur in that I go, oh, that's a great idea. And I go do it. I don't make sure all the lights are green. I don't (laughs) make sure, you know, everything is perfect before I take action because then that really holds you back. Now, of course, the result is that I made a lot of mistakes, which made for a great book, which is how I got into books. You know, I made mistakes and I started writing a newsletter to help people avoid them. And then eventually that led to writing a book. But to kind of answer what you're saying, for me, I had an accountant early on that said, look, like you're making a lot of money right now. Because I was for my age and I lived like a student. I didn't immediately get a salary and start living a big lifestyle. I was really financially savvy for a girl in her early 20s. And I focus on paying down my student loan debt and really just trying to move myself ahead as fast as I could. But my accountant said, look, like if a property isn't perfectly cash flowing, you're in a better position to buy properties and take the write-offs and write that off against your income right now. Then, you know, when you want to stop working and you need all of that to be cash flowing. As a real estate coach, when I eventually started coaching people, I wouldn't necessarily advocate for that because what I learned is when you have 30 properties, probably seven of them are going to have problems all at once. (laughs) 
The other thing to think about is you don't need 30 properties to get financially ahead. If you have three to five really solid properties in great areas that attract great tenants, they really are a minimal amount of work. We still have properties back in Canada. We're in Vegas and you know we have a great property manager that oversees them and we have wonderful tenants. They're in great neighborhoods. They're rarely hassles. Like we had a mold problem at one of them recently. It took a few hours of our time, but it's minimal. So it depends on how you approach real estate investing and the kind of advice that you take. Yeah. So just to pause and just reflect for a moment on a couple of things you've said there. First of all, going back, I love what you said about perfection. Perfection is the roadblock to done, basically. (laughs) It can keep you from making progress. And so you're right. As an entrepreneur, you have to be able to run with something before it's perfect. Otherwise, you'll just never be able to move forward. And so I love that you did that. And you took some risks and it sounds like it worked out well. So as you say, you know, you learned a lot of things the hard way. And that's ultimately what you made into a newsletter to help other people. And then that grew into a business where you were coaching other people. And I also love what you said a moment ago about how much is enough. I think a lot of people get into real estate and they just kind of get into this acquisition mode where they just keep acquiring and acquiring. And I do think one key thing to happiness and feeling, you know, fulfilled is to sort of know what your line is in terms of how much is enough and what is the right number for you, because otherwise you can just be busy. You know, you can just be always overwhelmed and always have too much to do because you keep feeling that you must add and add and add. So I love the idea of finding three to five properties that really work for you. And I'm curious if you have any tips. I'm guessing that acquiring the property at the right price is one of the major keys to making that cash flow and perhaps longevity in terms of keeping the property for a long time. But I'm really curious to hear your tips. Real estate's really forgiving. I saw this all the time as people would get hung up on finding the perfect property, trying to get the lowest price. And five years would go by and they've lost out on five years of mortgage paydown. They've lost out on five years of appreciation. And there are markets that don't consistently go up. And, you know, there are cycles, of course. But if you're going into it with a 10 to 20 year mindset, real estate cycles up, you know, unless you're buying in an area that nobody wants to live in anymore, you want to kind of think about trends and what's going to happen in a market area. But if you're buying in solid, tried and true areas with good employment, you know, good government in place that takes care of it, you know, real estate's forgiving. We bought a house that became a crack house. It was an absolute nightmare. And ultimately we sold it for like whatever somebody would pay us. And we only lost $30,000 on that. And I'm saying that because this is one of the worst things that could ever happen to somebody, you know, buying a property in an area, getting a property manager that got charged with manslaughter. He was on house arrest. He was the only guy who had managed this property. And still in the course of five years, we only lost $30,000. So I know $30,000 sounds like a lot, but when you think about like the most giant mistake you could make, and that's all we lost, (laughs) that's not Oh my goodness. What a story. Wow. Yeah, it is. That's why I wrote a great book because I can tell you all the things and it was completely preventable. Everything that happened was preventable. You know, it's just making better choices. And that's really what it came back down to is we just made some bad choices. And thankfully, I can blame that property entirely on my boyfriend at the time because I didn't want anything to do with it. But it made for a good story for my book. So, you know. (laughs) And your book is more than cash flow. The first Um, one, yeah. Do you have other real estate books as well? Nope, that's it. I wrote that in 2013. And shortly after, we started to pivot away from real estate. 
By then I'd been doing it for 13 years. My first property I bought in 2001 and, you know, I was getting tired of it because we had turned it into a full-time job and we had a ton of properties and we were coaching real estate people. And it was never intended to be my full-time thing. It was always intended to be the backup plan and the retirement plan. And somehow it just became my full-time thing. But my passion has always been on the creative side, which is you know, why I'm so grateful for the real estate experiences, which created the stories that led me to write my first book, which opened the door to the publishing world to me. And it has led me to running book launchers, which is to me the greatest company. I, I was always meant to run this company and create this and help people write books. You know, If I look back on childhood, this is what I was meant to do, but I needed to do all those other things first to be able to do this. Yes, that is a wonderful point that everything that you do along the way, you know, you may feel like you're having roadblock after roadblock, but in reality, you're learning and accumulating knowledge that ultimately for you has led you to create a successful company that helps people author books, not just to write books, but to successfully market and, you know, successfully become authors. And there's mm-hmm. a huge difference, of course, because it is possible now for anyone to self-publish But that's something that I'm really interested in hearing more about. One quick question just to tie up the real estate. When you decided to launch book launchers Mm -hmm. and you and your husband at that time were in Canada and then you decided to move to California, was the real estate able to support you in a way that allowed you to make this huge leap into both of you with new careers? Yeah. How did you make that transition? Yeah. I mean, it's a complicated story because it's crossing a border and that brought in a whole different element of things. And we discovered something called deemed disposition. As soon as we moved and became United States residents, Canada deems all of our assets as disposed, which means we have to pay capital gains on everything, even though we still own them. And so that was really joyful. We had to sell a property just to pay the government for the properties that we still own. So there's some really complicated aspects that don't apply to most people that we went through. But essentially, we sold a couple of properties to give me seed money to start book launchers. And then our real estate, for the most part, was providing us a secondary income to really subsidize our living in Los Angeles until the pandemic hit. And I mean, being real, we had a 30,000 square foot office building and our tenants was actually a medical office. So there was a giant space to them. And then secondary We had like a blood lab place, a pharmacy, and some other smaller tenants that kind of circled that. The doctors moved out at the start of January 2020, and then the pandemic hit. So try filling a 30,000 square foot office building in the middle of a pandemic. So it was really rough. And so our properties were no longer funding us. Like that property was largely our cash flow, and it now became the opposite of cash flow and was very challenging. So we had to sell other properties to cover the losses on that property while we tried to solve that problem. So there's good and bad to every adventure. A developer ended up buying the property because it was a phenomenal piece of land. And next time I go back there, there'll probably be a giant apartment building. But yes, real estate made it possible. It funded it for a long time, the first two and a half years that we were there. And then real estate funded the problems that we encountered with the pandemic and gave us a chance to kind of recover and fix that too. So Real estate is a great backup, you know, doesn't always go the way you plan it to, but I'm a big fan of having some property. Terrific. So tell me why someone should publish a book. I mean, it depends. There's no one reason. I have some clients who have done it. 
for legacy reasons. They're like, I want my children to know this story in the future. And, you know, I want this to be on paper. If something happens to me, I want to know that this story and this advice will live on. Most people do it for brand and business building and secondary income. And it's not necessarily that the book will generate tons of income. My first book did phenomenally well, and it still pays me a little bit, maybe $200 a month now, like nine years later. The other books, New Brand You, my second book doesn't pay that much. Self-Publish and Succeed is probably $400 to $500 a month. So there's some passive income from the book, but it's the fact that it's now an asset. So looking at it like a piece of property, this asset can generate income in so many ways. It's not just the content. You now have the rights to use that content in so many ways. So sometimes it can be translated. You can sell off foreign rights. Some people get the opportunity to turn it into a television series. Others will have audiobook and large print and workbooks and courses. And it all evolves from this first piece of property, this intellectual property that you put into a book. Talks can come out of that as well. There's so many ways to make money from this first piece of content. And it's also a really great door opener. So look in your field, everybody probably has the same medical credentials, right? Very similar. You know, there might be specialists, but even the specialists all have very similar credentials. So how do you differentiate yourself? A book, you've now written the book on the subject and your colleagues haven't. And so that's the differentiator for a lot of people to get out from the crowd of people that have the same credentials as them. So do you recommend nonfiction versus fiction? I mean, for the purposes of making money, building a brand and growing your business, yes. <laughs> fiction has interesting business aspects. We don't work in it for a lot of reasons. It's really hard to sell fiction books. A lot of the fiction authors will write 12 books before they start selling any. And that's a hard model for a lot of people. And, and I mean, my experience is in nonfiction anyways. I read 20 nonfiction books for every fiction book, if not more. So I have the expertise there that I don't have in fiction. That's probably the case for most of our audience as well. I would think it's definitely the case for me. Tell me about your experience with self-publishing versus publishing companies. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people think that they need to get a traditional publisher. And my own personal experience, I kind of felt like I had to be chosen and I wasn't a legitimate author if I didn't. And I had built a platform in Canada to the point where a couple of publishers had kind of, you know, said hello and were interested in me. And I got in a really serious conversation with Wiley and I told them, hey, I've got this book idea. You know, I'd had this crack house. I'd had some other problems. And they said, uh, you know, another general real estate book. No. Then they said, you know, we're interested in working with you. And so I was like, okay. And they gave me a book idea. And we went back and forth on this proposal, which is really unusual. The vast majority of people who want a traditional publisher have to write a book proposal and then they pitch it to an agent and then the agent will decide if they want to take you on and then they'll shop you to the traditional publisher. So it was very unusual that I was in direct talks with the publisher. So I assumed I was getting a book deal. We went back and forth for three months. I paid people to work on this proposal, edit it, develop it with me. And the publisher gave me feedback. At the end of three months, they sent me an email that said I didn't have a strong enough platform to sell books. So first they rejected my idea. Now they rejected me. And I was really devastated, but it was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me because when I eventually recovered, I realized that I still wanted to write a book and I was going to do it because I believed that my message would help a lot of people. And so self-publishing was the only option, but I didn't just self-publish. I decided that, you know, if I'm going to self-publish, I'm going to do it better 
than if I had gotten a book deal. So I was going to make this book everything a traditionally published book was and probably more. And so I went headfirst with a vengeance into all things self-publishing and publishing and marketing. And I took my book to number one overall on Amazon. So had a Dan Brown, I had a Game of Thrones with this niche nonfiction real estate book that was self-published. I did really, really well, but it was powered by vengeance. <laughs> but it was phenomenal because, you know, in that first kind of 12 months after, if I had gotten a book deal and done the same, which I don't think I would have because the support that I got for that book was largely because of my story behind it. But if I had, I would have made less than $8,000 on royalties from the traditional publisher. And I made almost a hundred thousand being self-published. And I got to talk to TV companies. You know, I had the rights to everything. I turned it into courses. I made tons of money from that book that I couldn't have made from the publisher. And by the way, I wasn't even going to get to write the book that I really wanted to write with the publisher. I was going to have to write the version of the book that they wanted me to write. So that's why I love self-publishing for like rights, royalties, control. You know, to me, it's everything. Like you did with the crack house, basically, you came upon a situation that some people would interpret as a failure and you turned it into a learning opportunity that actually catapulted you forward into a whole world of opportunity that you would have not had, had you not had that rejection from the publisher, for example, or, you know, the crack house situation. It sounds like you learned a ton from that. So similarly, from the rejection, you were motivated to figure this out. And that's not a small feat to have figured out how to author a book that would become a bestseller and to accelerate to the number one spot on Amazon. So I can definitely appreciate how you would be bringing that knowledge to other people because that can cut a huge learning curve for everyone that you help. How long did it take you an investment of your time to sort through all of that? I don't even know, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. And I mean, at the time, my real estate coaching business was going pretty smoothly and I didn't have kids yet. So I had a lot more disposable time, if you will, to invest in it. But the writing of the book itself was hundreds and hundreds of hours. But the research that went into doing what I did and the networking, I mean, it was probably a thousand hours, if not more, to do that. So that's why I started book launchers, because people don't have time for that. And hiring people, I made mistakes too, as I did this. And I can tell you from hiring at book launchers, like hiring, training, vetting the people for every piece of the puzzle. Like we have somebody on our team that almost exclusively does hiring these days because it is such an intense job. And then to make sure you've got the right person, you got to test them and go through the whole thing. So it's really, really labor intensive. And I don't think the vast majority of people writing nonfiction books have the time or the energy for it. So our team does so much of that for you that you can kind of bring your expertise and, you know, we can turn it into a book and it's still work. There's no way to avoid it, but it's a lot less work when somebody else is doing all of the pieces and project managing and overseeing all the people involved. So tell me about that process. I think our audience, myself included, our biggest limitation I think is time. And we may have ideas, we may even have outlines of books that we would like to write, but, you know, not have the time to get those finished. So what would you recommend for someone in that situation? And tell me about how your business model works and whether that might be a good fit. Yeah. I mean, we've worked with quite a few doctors. I'll answer this in two ways. So the first way is I'll tell you the advice that I have, having worked with the physicians and different kind of specialists that we've worked with. One is that the people who have succeeded 
have said, okay, Thursday night is my book night. And they've kind of made a two or three hour time period that's sacred every week. Some of them have like office days, so they're not seeing patients. And so they're able to carve out part of that day. But regardless, it was those people that were able to, you know, with the exceptions of when they had to be in the emergency, that was sacred. Like that was their book time. And then they would meet with their writer. So we have writers and they would meet with their writer that night. Or then if they're not meeting with the writer, they're reading what the writer's written. Or when they get to editing, they're going through what the editor has done. And they're able to get through the process in about a year, you know, 12 to 15 months, just committing two or three hours, but making it two or three real hours every single week. But the other ones that didn't do that, the one book is two years and counting that we're still working on the book because she kind of works on it when she has time. (laughs) And it's tough because the time is limited. She has kids and she's got a very busy practice. So that's my first advice is you got to find two or three hours a week that's sacred. And that is your time. And if you don't have that, it's going to be a very painful process. The other thing is to get out of your head (laughs) because I find we have perfectionists, which is great. You know, in my own doctor, I want you to care about the details. Okay. Like, you know, that's something that's really, really important. And at the same time, when it comes to a book, Perfection is your enemy. Perfection is the enemy of progress. And so you really have to get out of your head and trust the team to carry you forward and to make your book good. And then the third thing is to remember who your reader is. We had one book that was written by a doctor for doctors, but the other books we've worked on were written for the people they wanted to help and they weren't doctors. And so you need to write for your reader. So if you're working with a ghostwriter, just because you use a big word, doesn't mean that's the word the ghostwriter should use. The ghostwriter needs to write in your voice, but a voice that would communicate clearly to someone at a grade eight level, what you're trying to say, not at a grade 12 level with big words that everybody has to have a glossary for to understand because it would be a very hard read. So we help with all that. And there's a whole process that I can take you through, but I thought those would be really relevant points for anybody listening if they're thinking of writing a book. Definitely. And so at what stage would an author come to you? Would they come to you with an idea? Would they come to you with a first draft? Tell me about how that process works. We'll work with you from any point from idea to first draft, sometimes a first edited draft, because anything past that, we have a hard time developing the concept and making sure it's marketable. Our ideal is for you to say, hey, this is what I want to write about. And then we build it with you. We have a story expert on the team. We actually have a couple story experts. And their job is to figure out what's the outcome of the outcome for your reader, which is essentially our marketing hook, who that reader really is, because it's not a demographic. You know, I really tend to see a lot of people come in and they're like, oh, it's women between the ages of 35 and 55. And I'm like, that's not good enough. Like, I don't know how to market to women between the ages of 35 and 55, even if I had the budget of Coca-Cola. I don't know how to market to those people. We need to get specific and understand the problem they're trying to solve and how you are the unique solution to that problem. So the story expert helps you craft that and then also builds a story arc, even though it's nonfiction, a story arc into your book so that it's an interesting and engaging read. And then we pair you with either a writing coach or a writer. I would say the vast majority of busy professionals will go with the writer option, but not always. Some people do want to try writing it themselves. Once you're through the writing, we move into editing and design and we start working on book marketing because one of my fundamental beliefs is they're not separate. A lot of people write the book and then they figure out how to market it and that creates a gap. And so, I mean, that very first conversation with the story expert, you're figuring out the marketing hook of the book while your book is in editing, we're doing 
pricing, competition, keyword research. We're layering that into title, subtitle, brainstorming, writing your description. We're brainstorming chapter titles. So their potential talks, their potential courses, their potential income streams for you in the future. And then, you know, we're talking about influencers in this space. We have a researcher on the team who does all kinds of great research to help the marketing efforts, all while your book is in editing, so that we know what we need to do to make you stand out in the process. And then we set all the distribution up for you, but everything belongs to you. You keep all rights, royalties, all the accounts are yours. We're not in the middle of anything. And then we move into marketing, which is the super fun part to get your book into readers' hands where we pitch you for podcasts and live appearances and bookstores and libraries and depending on your goals, maybe speaking engagements and things like that. Fantastic. So how would someone reach you if they're interested in pursuing becoming an author? Yeah, the best thing you could do is go to booklaunchers.com forward slash the number seven steps. So seven steps. That's a download to walk you through really thinking through some of the elements that you would need, whether you're working with us or writing it on your own in terms of your audience, your hook. One of the mistakes a lot of people make is just go, I'm going to write a book and they sit down and start writing. And in the seven steps, writing doesn't actually start until step five. So there's a bunch of things you want to do before you even start writing. And this download will give you that. And it also gives you my email address. So you can just hit reply and contact me directly that way. Fantastic. I love the concept of the marketing tying in from even before the writing begins, because that's really ultimately the key to success that I'm sure a lot of us as potential authors might miss. Depending, I suppose, on your goal with the book, but if selling books is part of the goal, then that is critical and brilliant to have a team behind you to, to do that. Well, Julie Broad, More Than Cash Flow is your real estate book. And Book Launchers is your book writing and launching company. And I really appreciate you coming to talk with me today on Doc Working the Whole Physician podcast. Thanks for having me. I look forward to speaking with you again and getting an update. Sounds good. Are you distracted with dreams of retirement, even though it's a long way off? Or are you living from one vacation to the next? Does it feel like your day is filled with dreaded duties instead of fulfilling work? You may need an experienced physician coach to walk you through a system to help you find joy and meaning in medicine again. You want somebody who has a lot of experience working specifically with physicians and who has a track record of helping doctors get content and happy at work again. I'm Amanda Taran, producer of Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. Thank you for being here. Please check us out at docworking.com and please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you for listening.